such a joy to be gathered with God's people. It's a privilege. We never want to take it for granted. Mission of submission. Masters and servants. That's where we want to be this morning. First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. You've got your Bibles. I hope you do. Uh, turn there. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. As we um, as you're turning there, I want to uh, read another verse of Scripture. You don't have to turn there. You turn to 1 Peter. But as you do, I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. It says this, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, and you could probably finish it, to the glory of God. That's right. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, all includes all. And one of the things that all includes is our work. Do all to the glory of God. Do our work to the glory of God. We are to work for the glory of God. What does it mean to do my work for the glory of God? Students, you're not exempt from this. You have work. We don't necessarily call it a job, but it is work. Uh, I agree with you. Um, it is a lot of work. And so what does it mean to do your schoolwork? For the glory of God. Well, we can make a list a mile long uh, in answering that question. But one thing that it does mean is that we would, from time to time, some more often than not, would need to submit to unjust suffering at the hands of an unjust master. We'll put it in our context for just a minute, then we'll read our text and put it in the context of that. Uh, 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 of 1 Peter and then bring it back to our present day context. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been treated unfairly by a boss? Students, you didn't have to answer out loud, <laughs> but that's okay. Thanks for your honesty. I guess your bosses weren't sitting here. Students, have you ever been treated unfairly by a teacher? Don't answer out loud. Your teacher might be in this room. Well, here's the thing, the beauties of God's word, God's word, so practical and relevant for our lives. And it speaks into this particular situation of our lives. I want you to look with me. First Peter, chapter two, let's read verses 18 through 25, and then we'll walk through this passage of scripture together. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you bow with me? Father, would you bless the preaching, the study of your word today? Help us to receive it with humble 
open hearts, eager to change, to become more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, to look more and more in practice like who we are in our standing before You, and that is righteous and holy. Father, humble us before You and Your Word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Exiles on mission must follow their heavenly master by submitting to their earthly masters. Exiles on mission must follow their heavenly master by submitting to their earthly masters. And sometimes those earthly masters are unjust. And that's what makes this command somewhat, sometimes very much, a matter of great difficulty for us. As believers. Well, where are we at in First Peter? We've been trudging our way through uh, this beautiful and awesome book. I shouldn't use the word trudging. I just use that in the sense of slowly working our way through. But it's not a drudgery. It is a joy. And as we've walked through, we could kind of summarize where we've been. If you want to scan your eyes back through chapter 1 and chapter 2, we could summarize it this way. The blessing of salvation and our subsequent new standard of living coupled with our new identity as God's chosen people, has put us in a unique situation as elect exiles in our world. And we live in this world, but we live differently than this world because we no longer belong to this world, and yet we still have a mission to our world. That was the past several weeks in 30 seconds. If you were confused by that, spend a little bit of time reading and studying back through chapter 1 through chapter 2, um, verse 17 of First Peter. If you want a quick synopsis of where we're at in this particular passage, look back up at chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, our mission is summarized. And we could say this about our mission. We learned in verses 11 through 12 that during our time as exiles on this earth, that is people who belong to God, we don't belong to the world, but we still live here. During our times as exiles on this earth, we are to point unbelievers to the glory of God by refusing to sin and by doing good no matter what people may say about us. And that really started this whole section that Peter's talking about how we live on mission. We said last week that our strategy, Peter's strategy, God's strategy for our mission is that we would submit and we would suffer. That we would submit and we would suffer. He begins in verse 13 with this theme of submission. And then he's going to transition when we get over about halfway through chapter 3 to the theme of suffering. And he'll carry that on through chapter 4 verse 11. But in fact, in this passage today, he goes ahead and interjects the theme of suffering. So we have submission and suffering in our passage that we are looking at today. There were three ways that we were called, are called to submit. Last week we saw, verse 13, submit or be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We saw that we are supposed to submit as citizens to our government. We talked about that in verses 13 through 17. Today, the command is servants be subject to your masters. Perhaps your translation uses the word slave there. 
It's not the word in the Greek that is always translated slave, but it is a word that could be translated slave. It could also just be translated as servant or a household servant. Let's talk for just a moment about these servants in Peter's day and time in this Roman Empire. In fact, it's believed that there were approximately 60 million servants or slaves, people that would fit this description. This wasn't a small group of people. In fact, probably many, if not most, of the Christians that Peter is writing to would have fallen into this category of household servants or slaves. How did one become one of these servants or slaves? You could have been captured in a war. You could have been kidnapped or you could have been born in to this slave or household servant role. What did these servants do? Well, some did things that we would think that servants or slaves would do. They did the things that no one else wanted to do. The terrible and dangerous jobs. But others in this society would have been doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, and artisans. And these, these people that fit this, this, uh, this category of household servant just ran the gamut of all sorts of jobs and places of service in their society. But their status was one of a servant or a slave. They were viewed as property. They were viewed as a thing rather than as a person. They had no legal rights and therefore they could be beaten and abused by their master. And the master would suffer no repercussions from the government. How were they treated? Well, some were treated well. And as you can imagine, some were treated very, very horribly. So maybe you're sitting here and thinking, well, I'm not a servant. I'm not a slave. We don't really have this category in our society today. And thank goodness we we don't in most cases. But this does apply to us because the principles that we learn here that Peter's going to teach and apply to these household servants would apply to anyone who suffers under the heavy hand of someone in authority over them, whether in our context that be in a, as a boss and employee relationship or a teacher student relationship. And so with that context, I want to share with you four truths concerning this command to submit to earthly masters. The first one we find at the very beginning of verse 18, and it's this. We are to submit to earthly masters out of submission to God. We are to submit to earthly masters out of submission to God. We saw a very, very similar point, almost the same point when we talked about submitting to the earthly government. And we're going to see a very similar point when we get into the next and the third section of this submission section of First Peter. Our submission ultimately to earthly masters comes and flows from our submission to God. We see this with one word in particular. Servants, be subject to your masters with all. And many translations are going to use the word respect. Really, it's the word fear there. It's the word fear. And sometimes we can translate the word fear to mean respect. What's interesting, and, and, and I think that all throughout Scripture, when we have the word fear, it's always used in relation to God. In fact, several times in 1 Peter, people are called not to fear other people. And so when it says that we are to submit to your masters with all fear, it's rooting our submission to earthly masters in our fear 
of God. Here's what that means. Number one, if you don't fear God, if you don't have a a reverent respect for who God is and are seeking to live your life for his glory and honor, then you're probably not going to be obedient to this command because there are times in life when this command is really difficult. Here's what it also means, though, is that our fear of God limits our submission to earthly masters. We spent some time on this when we talked about submitting to the government. We're not going to spend as much time on it today. But just before we dive really into this passage, hear me out. What Peter is not saying is that you are to do whatever your boss or your teacher or your master says, even if that thing would be dishonoring to God. There is a line that we draw. And so anytime an earthly master would call us to do something that would not fall into the category of glorifying God, then and only then can we say, no, I can't do that. But outside of that, we are called out of our submission to God. That is, if we are living for the glory of God, we are called to submit to our earthly masters. It is a command of Scripture, which means it is not optional for those who are followers of Christ. Truth number one, we submit out of submission to God. Truth number two, we submit to earthly masters. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Even when they are unjust. Even when they are unjust. Notice the rest of verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The Christians in Peter's day were no different than the Christians today. Oh, that sounds good, God. I'll be glad to do that. Until my master, until my boss starts treating me unfairly, then then I'm sure you don't want me to submit anymore, God. No. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This word unjust literally could be translated to be crooked, to be perverse, to be dishonest. Even to one who is cruel, we are called to submit. Now again, this doesn't mean participating in the unjust behavior that a master may be participating in. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're a teacher and you have a master, so to speak. Maybe they're even called a master, a headmaster, or maybe, maybe he or she's called a principal. And let's say that principal has, has decided that you have to now fill out this new report. In this new report, you're to track the progress of your students and their grades. Now, the last thing that you want to do is have to fill out another progress report. What this passage is saying is that even if that principle that you serve under is mean and rude towards you, you can't say, well, you're mean and rude. I'm not going to do that. There's nothing sinful about filling out a report, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And even if the one who's commanding you or calling you or instructing you to do it is a mean person and is rude towards you, that would be an example of submitting to an unjust Master, now, 
The caveat is that teacher must refuse to lie about the progress of the students, even if that principal were to demand it. You see the line there? That's just one example. But what we can't do is use the excuse, oh, my master is mean and rude, so that means I don't have to do anything. I can just revolt against that person's authority in my life. And Peter would say, unless he or she's calling you to do something that would be sinful for you to do, sinful before God, then you submit. Say, why in the world would God call us to do something like this? We'll get into a really important reason in just a moment in the second half of this passage. But let's not forget the context into which Peter is writing this. He has been setting up the case, making this case, that as exiles we are to live on mission. Why do we do this? Well, we remember the mission. This is a way that we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. That is, live the Christian life that he's called us to live. And when we live the way Christ has called us to live, we stand out in our world. Right? Because the natural thing for us to want to do is say, I'm not doing that. No, not the way you treat me. I'm not doing that. The natural thing for us is to revolt. Is to revile when we've been reviled. To rebel when we feel like we have been treated unjustly. And so when we don't do that, when we say, okay, I'll do it with joy in our hearts because we know that we are serving God as we submit to this unjust master, the world then will take notice. It doesn't make sense to the world. It makes the world wonder why. And it leads the world... To the Jesus who has saved us and who can save them. Remember, remember, we have to remember throughout this whole letter that exiles live differently. And we do it for the glory of God. Third, we submit to earthly masters to receive a heavenly reward. We submit to earthly masters to receive a heavenly reward. It's an interesting couple of verses here. Verse 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. We're going to come back to that word gracious. For this is a gracious thing. What is a gracious thing? Well, when we submit to unjust masters. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Kind of repeating what he just said. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. He says that two times here. That's important. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, first thing we want to note here is that we're not talking about suffering for sinning. We're not talking about a reward for suffering for sinning. Listen, if you get reprimanded because you disobeyed the rules, don't whine about that. That's not what Peter is saying is a gracious thing. Not saying, oh, I endured the suffering. I endured the punishment. Well, yeah, you broke the rules. You you got in trouble. That's no credit to you. What is a credit to you is if when you do good. And as you are doing good. 
you suffer unjustly. Now that is a credit. What is this language about? It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He says that two times on either end and then uses this word credit. If we were to go to Luke chapter 6, verse 32 through 35, Jesus taught a very similar thing. And there he used that word grace. It's literally the word, this is grace to you. That's what Peter's saying, this is grace to you. Jesus uses that same word three times. In my translation, you're going to hear the word benefit. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit or grace is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit or grace is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. That's the same word credit that Peter uses. Now, finish what Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Here's what we note here. In Peter's use of this word grace, in a parallel passage where Jesus is teaching about the same thing, doing good when others are treating you poorly, Jesus uses that word grace three times, then uses the word credit, and then uses the word reward. In Matthew's version, in his account of Jesus' teaching, he uses the word reward in place of the word grace. I know that's technical, but all that to say... This word grace that Peter uses two times is actually used by Jesus to speak of a reward. So what does it mean for it to be a gracious thing in the sight of God? That it is grace to you. That it is a credit to you. Well, I think it means that there is a reward awaiting as we, out of submission to God, submit ourselves to unjust masters. You say, well, I'd love to know what this reward is. Because it's, it's got to be good if I'm going to live my life willing to submit to unjust masters. To cruel and crooked and dishonest masters. How in the world? It's got to be a good reward. Well, yeah. Actually, we can't. We can never come up with a reward that is greater than this. We've actually already studied about it. It's the blessing of salvation that Peter opened his letter with. In chapter 1, let's remind us of this reward. In chapter 1, verse 3, Peter said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. And then he jumps right in with suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What's one of the trials that Peter was thinking about as he wrote verse 7 of chapter 1? The trial of suffering under unjust masters. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ was coming for the Christian who continues following the Lord, even when it means submitting to unjust 
Masters, praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. Eternal life. It doesn't mean that we're earning that. It's not what it means. It means that because God has saved us, this is how we live. And as we live this way as exiles on this earth, we live looking forward to what God has in store for us. It's what keeps us going. It's what helps us say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'll be glad to do that. Even though you haven't treated me well, I'll joyfully do this. Because God has called me to look different than the world around me. One writer said it this way, Suffering is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they were called. It is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. And that's exactly what we see in the next verse. We see this stated explicitly in the next verse where Peter says, For to this you have been called. To what? To unjust suffering. We have been called to that. This calling is our call to salvation. When Jesus calls us to salvation, he is calling us to suffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But lest we complain, Peter quickly reminds us that Jesus is not calling us to walk a path that he himself has not already walked. Truth number four, submit to earthly masters because of Jesus. Submit to earthly masters because of Jesus. Peter does something really awesome here. I love it. He is is taking this everyday situation. I mean, this is something that the Christians that he was writing to were facing on a daily basis. And as he gives them their practical command, he roots it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love this because it's a reminder that the gospel is necessary for us every single day of our lives. Notice that he says this. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Jesus calls us to imitate his submissive suffering. Jesus calls us to imitate his example. This word example here was actually used in the Greek language to talk about children who are learning to write their letters. And how do we teach children to write their letters? Well, they trace them, right? Maybe they put the letter on down on the table and they put a sheet of paper, a white sheet of paper over it and they can see through and they trace it. Maybe it's got dotted lines, right? And they trace it. Now, in our day and time, it's on their iPad and, and they trace it with their finger and it shows up on their iPad. That's the word example. Picture for a moment. You're learning the letter A. And so you want to trace it. And you want to stay right on those dotted lines. And you don't want to swerve to the left or to the right or up and down at all. That's what Peter is calling us to do in imitating Jesus. Where we follow in his footsteps. And we don't swerve to the right or to the left. But we stay right where He has already walked. And where has Christ walked? He has walked a path 
of suffering for us. Jesus faced earthly injustice without sinning. Notice verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth throughout the rest of this passage. Peter is going to borrow from Isaiah chapter 53. That suffering servant passage is well known to us. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Listen, as Jesus was being beaten, he did not open his mouth. He sinned not once. Even while he was suffering, and it was unjust suffering, was it not? I mean, he is the only one who's ever suffered and had never, ever sinned. And yet he endured it. He did not retaliate. He kept his mouth closed in the face of false accusations, in the face of unjust suffering. And what could be more unjust than an innocent man being hung on a criminal's cross, than a sinless man dying a sinner's death? You think your situation is unjust? You think you're being treated unfairly? Look to the cross. No one has ever been treated more unfairly than Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet he opened not his mouth. So what do you want to do when your boss treats you poorly? We want to slander. Right? We want to retaliate. Whether with our words or with our actions. We want to not work hard when she's not looking. We want to lie a little bit on our timesheet to get back. The injustice that we are experiencing and enduring. One writer said that Peter advises that in some situations, silence is the best response, as in any other response will be turned against them. It is, however, the silence not of passive resignation, but of patient confidence. So my question then is confidence in what? How can I keep my mouth closed when I'm experiencing injustice, when I'm experiencing the the effects of living under an unjust A crooked master. Look at verse, the rest of verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus faced earthly injustice without sinning by trusting in divine justice. This word entrusting literally means to hand over. Here's what it's saying here. Jesus handed over his entire situation, himself, his cause, his passion, his enemies. He handed it all over to one who could be trusted to, at the right time, dole out justice. We read about that in Romans chapter 12. Verse 19 through 20, Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do that? We hand over our situation to the Lord. And we trust that He is a righteous and faithful judge. And He will bring justice at the appropriate time, but vengeance is His, not 
ours. And so we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And when we are reviled, we do not revile in return. When we suffer, we do not threaten, but we continue handing ourselves over to him, to God who judges justly. How do we do this? How do we choose not to sin in these situations and instead trust God's justice? Furthermore, how how would we even want to do this? Like, where does the desire to submit to unjust masters even come from? Here's the truth that Peter has been getting at through this whole passage. Don't miss this. Jesus, when he suffered and died on the cross, he was not merely setting an example for us to follow, but his death, his suffering and death on the cross was the means by which our sins are forgiven and our lives are transformed to a new way of living. Jesus didn't just come to set an example and say, all right, you see how I live? Now you live the same way. Trace my life. Walk in my footsteps. Because if that's all he did was set an example, then we would all be doomed because we are sinners, every one of us. We are not righteous. Scripture says we are unrighteous. And so we can try as we, as we might, we will never be able to walk the footsteps of Jesus. We will never be able to trace His life with our life. We will go to the left and to the right, up and down. Our finger will slide off of that letter. We will step out of His, his footsteps time and time again. So He knew that. And when He died on the cross, He wasn't just setting an example, but He died for you. Go back to verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you. This is the truth of substitutionary atonement. That means Jesus died in our place. And Peter gets to that in verse 24 when he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus has not just called us to imitate his submissive suffering. He has saved us to imitate his submissive suffering. He saved us to this. Christian, if you've trusted Christ and you're a Christian here today, Jesus saved you for this purpose, that you would die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, it's easy for us just to have this big category of sin and say, okay, I'm going to die to sin and live to righteousness. What particular sin does Peter have in mind? The sin of retaliation. The sin of slandering the unjust master. Trying to get back at him or her. Jesus died so that you would die to that sin. And instead, that you would live to righteousness. What is the righteousness that he's calling us to? It's the righteousness of enduring unjust suffering. By his wounds you have been healed. Healed from what? That curse of sin. That thing in us that would keep us from doing what we're called to do. Jesus has healed that in us so that we can do what he has called us to do. And so if you're sitting here going, now how do I submit to this unjust boss, to this unjust teacher, to this unjust master? I mean, the 
the Christians that Peter's writing to, there's no telling what some of them were suffering, what they were going through in their servanthood and in their slavery. He said, Peter, how do I do this? Because everything in me is crying out, revolt, retaliate. And Peter would say, the cross. Because you have died to that old way of life. You have died to it. When Jesus died on the cross, you died to your sin. And now you are to live in righteousness. Jesus bore our sins so we would live in His righteousness. And He found us so that we would live under His Lordship. So what gives Jesus the right to tell me what to do? Well, He died for you. And verse 25 says that He has found you. When we were straying like sheep, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our soul. Really, that return is a passive. We could, we could say that we have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our soul. We didn't return on our own. We're just straying away like sheep without a shepherd. And God sends His Son to be the good shepherd, to lay down His life for the sheep, to take our sinful hearts and to transform them, to turn us back to Him, to live under His Lordship. The shepherd is the master of the flock. He is the overseer. He calls the shots. He makes the rules. But He is a good shepherd. He is a kind overseer. He has our best interests at heart. He is the Lord of our lives. And so if He calls us to endure unjust suffering, we ought to do just that. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 and 11, we find these beautiful words. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And His arm rules. Think about that word overseer in Peter. His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. We talked about a reward earlier. And His recompense before Him, His justice. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. He is our master. He is our overseer. And at the same time, He is our kind shepherd. Jesus saved us to imitate His submissive suffering. Do you find it difficult to endure unjust suffering? Well, Peter himself did at one point in his life. Do you, do you remember that Peter, the one writing this, was the very one who was scolded by Jesus. If Jesus got on to Peter. I mean, it's one thing when your mama gets on to you, your daddy gets on to you, but Jesus got on to Peter. He's, in fact, he got on to him so much, he called Peter Satan. I don't know if your mom or daddy ever called you Satan, but they might have wanted to. Jesus actually did. He called Peter Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. Why did he say that? Because Peter was revolting against Jesus' prediction that he, Jesus, would suffer and die. Jesus predicted that he was fixing to walk down a path of suffering, and Peter said, oh, no, you're not. Peter saw, Peter saw no good in suffering. He said, oh, no, you're not, Jesus. And Jesus said, Satan, get behind me. Now we have that same Peter calling us to live a life of 
unjust suffering. And, and, and lest we think that Peter is just telling others to do this and he's not doing, it them, him, doing this himself, go read Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. How Peter is arrested. He is mistreated for following Christ. He endures unjust suffering. What changed in Peter that would lead him from a man who said, oh no, Jesus, we're not doing any of this suffering stuff. To someone who is now saying, for the glory of God, suffer, even if it's unjust. What changed? Well, Jesus went ahead and did what he said he was going to do, even though Peter told him not to do it. He walked the path of suffering. And when he did, he bore Peter's sin. And he bore your sin. And he changed Peter's heart. And he changes our hearts. To live in a way that honors the Lord, brings Him glory, and in so doing, points others to our Heavenly Master. One writer said this, I want you to think about the present in light of eternity. How do, we, how do we endure because of what Jesus did for us and remembering that this suffering is temporary? One writer said this, Peter shows the intimate relationship between our study of Christ and the Christian life. The past suffering of Christ is the present condition of believers. While the present glory of Christ, right, he's in heaven, is the future glory of those who follow in his steps. You see, following in the steps of Jesus leads us through suffering, but it doesn't leave us in suffering. In fact, it will ultimately lead us in glory with Christ. Considering this imagery that Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter uses of Jesus as our shepherd and overseer, I just want to close by borrowing from that beloved psalm. Psalm chapter 23. I want you to consider how this would apply to your specific situation wherever you're at in life. My closing encouragement to you is this. As we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, we must trust that He is our Good Shepherd. And thus, this path of unjust suffering is the path that leads us into green pastures and beside still waters, to the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, to victory over our enemies all while being pursued by His goodness and mercy until we are one day led into His glorious presence to dwell in His house, the house of the Lord, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we love You. 
And we thank You for this passage of Scripture. Lord, this is real life. There will be times in our life where we are under the authority of an earthly master who is unjust. There will be times when we are treated unfairly. What do we do in those times? How do we glorify You in those times? Father, You have told us as long as we're not sinning, we are to submit to that unjust master. And Father, the only way that's possible is because You have saved us from our sin and our rebellion against this command. Father, if there's someone here today who is living in their sin, they can't obey this command because they haven't died to their sin, they haven't been risen to new life to live in righteousness, Father, I pray that they would trust in this truth that You bore their sins on the tree. You paid the price for their sin and You paid it in full. Father, they would trust that and receive salvation. And Father, as Christians, help us to apply these truths to our lives. Help us to look different than the world around us. Because we are wanting to point people to the One who has changed us and made us look different so that they too can trust in Him. So that together we can enjoy forever and ever, not suffering, that's temporary, Father, but that we can enjoy forever and ever You and Your presence and Your glory and the inheritance that is waiting on us. Father, help us to be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.